in Japanese anyway, the way that you ask somebody what they are is literally translates to, but what are you in your heart? Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for Boom. Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on our minds. Boom. 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 Welcome to another episode of Boom. I'm Hannah. And I'm Melissa. And today we have a really exciting episode. We talked with Carolyn Bertozzi, who's a professor at Stanford, and she identifies as a gay woman. And we also had a really beautiful conversation with Riley Suhar, who's a Stanford PhD student who identifies as a transgender woman. Yes, and we're having this special episode in celebration of Pride Month. So happy Pride, everyone. And that being said, in this episode, we're going to talk about some topics that we don't usually discuss on Boom. And they might be somewhat sensitive, like the biology of sex, gender identity, and sexual orientation. And so we just wanted to share that up front, but really hope that you will stick around with an open mind because it's a really beautiful episode where we learn more about the stories from scientists in these areas. And if you're wondering about the first clip that you heard to open the episode, we really think that was a beautiful moment with Riley where she explains what that means. And we felt so moved by it that we also wanted to title the episode that way. Yeah, so stick around. First, we have Carolyn's interview, and then then we talk to Riley. So if you want to hear more from her, make sure you stick around for the full episode. But before we jump into those, we have a bit of boom. 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 For our first bit of boom, we are going to look into the story of Castor Semenya and... She actually was brought to our attention by one of our friends who listens to podcasts and was just like, I have this crazy story. You're not going to believe it. And I really didn't. It's kind of wild to think about people that have different biological sexes or maybe different chromosomal patterns. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But anyway, the story of Castor Semenya, she's this amazing runner who won gold in the women's 800 meter at the world championships in 2009. She had the fastest time of the year. And it was four seconds faster than her time in the same race just a month earlier, which in track and field, an 800 meter, that's two laps on a normal track. That's pretty wild to cut four seconds off in one yeah, month. Yeah, that's crazy. And so Especially naturally. Especially so fast. Yeah. Like my time should probably have it like <laughs> a lot more than four seconds off. But when you're winning medals and in the world championships, cutting down four seconds is insane. Right, right. It's actually wild. And she actually had made improvements of 25 seconds in her mile time, her 1500 meter event earlier as well. So that's like, she's making these really quick improvements. And so she kind of comes under scrutiny of the IAAF. And she was asked to take this sex verification test to ascertain whether she was actually female. And the sex tests were never published officially, which at the time resulted in some unverified claims that she maybe had some kind of intersex trait that was giving her some advantage, either likely hormonally, right, that would be Mm kind of looking like some kind of doping that was giving her an advantage. 
But in the end, they let her keep her medal and award, whatever the ruling was. When was now that? The, that was 2009. So fast forward to 2018, where the IAAF, which, sorry, that stands for the International Association of Athletics Federations, announced this new differences of sex development rules that required athletes with specific disorders of sex development and certain hormone levels to take medication in order to lower these hormone le levels, specifically testosterone. Mm -hmm. And this was a really narrowly scoped rule. It only applied to athletes competing in the 400 meter, the 800 meter, and the 1500 meter races, which were Semenya's races. And she actually tried to change these rules, but she was unsuccessful. She was, you know, amidst some of these legal battles with this institution. And it actually hindered her from, like, kept her back from competing. So she missed some races in 2019. And she was determined after losing this battle and changing the rule, she switched her event to the 200-meter race because it was outside the 400-meter ban. And that was her plan to run that in the 2020 Olympics. Wow, that's amazing. She's just like, well, I'll just yeah. change my, <laughs> yeah. uh, my event. And that's incredible. Obviously, the 2020 Olympics have been postponed, but I'll be interested to continue to follow her story and mm -hmm. yeah, see, see how she does in the Olympics. And this story reminded me of this TED Radio Hour podcast I listened to recently. And it was on the biology of sex. And one of the guests was Emily Quinn. And she's a 25-year-old animator who works at Cartoon Network. But she's also an intersex advocate. And she herself is intersex. And I would encourage you to look her up if, she, if you want to hear more about her story. But I just wanted to mention one thing that really stood out from what she talked about. And that's that there are seven things that make up someone's biological sex. And the, I thought this was so interesting because I think it's becoming more common knowledge that gender is a spectrum, but I think it's not as common to talk about sex as being on a spectrum. Like it's often, you know, people are male or female. And so I think how she frames what makes up biological sex is really just like such an interesting way to look at it. And so the seven things that she lists are a person's genitals, person's chromosomes, which was interesting because there are a lot more variations of chromosomal patterns than I knew. Not just XX, you're saying, and not just XY. Exactly. There's other ones. Exactly. And actually, we'll talk a little bit about that at the end. So there's a little cliffhanger for you. Um, <laughs> but also a person's gonads, like ovaries or testicles, and then internal sex organs, hormone production, then the response you have to those hormones, so your hormonal response, Whoa. and then can also, differ. So your hormonal yeah. response can be different from just what you're producing. Exactly. So just because if you like secrete some certain amount of testosterone, like two people can have the same amount of hormone production, but have different responses to those, which, yeah, which is really interesting. Wow. And then the last thing is secondary sex characteristics, which if I'm remembering correctly is, are things like, like facial hair kind of in that realm. I think it was just crazy to me to think that we've gone so long thinking that sex is black and white or male and female when there's really so many different things that make up our biological sex. And yeah, I think we could talk about this a lot longer, but if you want to learn more, you should definitely listen to the TED Radio Hour podcast on the biology of sex. Honestly, Melissa, when you said, oh, this reminds me of the TED Talk where 
biological stuff. Yeah. It's like seven things. I was like, what? How are there seven? <laughs> yeah. It is really interesting and, and great to like learn and be educated about these differences and complexities. Yeah. And so, but there's also, you know, in addition to our biological sex, we have our gender identity and our sexual orientation. So there's like so many things that make up who we are as a person. And we're going to touch on a couple of those in this episode. Yeah, we're excited to just hopefully like propagate the idea that everyone is important and everyone's identity is important in all of these aspects. And we hope that you'll get that and feel more comfortable talking about some of these different things with us. We're going to start off with our interview with Carolyn Bertozzi. So, hey, everyone, we're here talking with Stanford professor Carolyn Bertozzi, who is a leading scientist in the field of chemical biology, and she actually founded a field known as bioorthogonal chemistry and is one of the youngest recipients of the MacArthur Grant, having received it at age 33. So we're really excited to have you join us today. Carolyn, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Yeah. And we're really excited. We really love to start with people's roots. And we'd like to ask this question, when did you know you wanted to be a scientist? I guess, you know, I mean, the, the tr honest truth is probably sometime in college. You know, I was kind of open to many ideas. And then I was, I sort of started college thinking about being a pre-med, you know, and going to medical school. And so then I had to take a number of science classes just as, you know, the prerequisites that you have to take, right? So I had, I signed up for some math courses and physics and chemistry and biology. And then, you know, kind of unexpectedly, I found that I really had an affinity for organic chemistry. So that was the class that kind of... I feel like I don't hear that very often. Yeah. <laughs> That's usually the deciding factor the other way. <laughs> I know. That was my, and in fact, that was fully my expectation. I mean, I, I didn't think, I, I thought I would probably not enjoy it, that I would just be, you know, kind of gutting it out like everyone else. So I had very low expectations, I guess, from, the, from that class. But in fact, it was just the opposite. And I, I kind of discovered that, you know, that was like the first class I had ever taken where I felt like I just really wanted more, you know, I just wanted to consume as much as possible. And I, you know, I stopped going out on weekends because I wanted to stay home and read more of my organic chem book. And I was, I had just read the whole book. I finished the book and I was in the library, which is where you found books back then. You know, I was digging <laughs> around like other, were there any other books on organic chemistry? And I, you know, was just reading books, book after book and doing problems. And it was the first time that I'd had that experience. So that's when, you know, I kind of had this idea that maybe organic chemistry was kind of my destiny. And then I, I switched my major to, to be a chemistry major at that point. So, and that was like halfway through college, maybe. Wow. So, so that was where I kind of, in my mind, I felt like this was going to be my thing. And then that was like my junior year of college, I had switched my major. And then my senior year of college, I decided I wanted to do a PhD in organic chemistry. So that kind of set me on that path. But before then, it was sort of like, you know, anybody's guess. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's amazing. And such a wonderful story. And I think that's the first time I've ever heard anyone say that organic chemistry was got, what got them to where they are today. Well, well in, in that positive that, way. <laughs> those of us who end up as professors of chemistry, <laughs> probably <laughs> a small number. Yeah. 
Yeah, but, you know, everyone, every now and then I have a student in my own class because now I teach, you know, the class that converted me is now I teach that class, right? And every once in a while you get that, you know, someone says, you know, I was, I took this class because it was a requirement for the pre-med, you know, most of the students who take organic chemistry in the United States are pre-meds, right? It's a very small number are actual like chemistry majors. But every once in a while, there's somebody who says, this is my thing. Yeah, wow. It should be more, I think. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like it's really rewarding when somebody says that after taking your class too. Yeah. My experience with Orgo was I think that I really liked it a lot and I love learning like different mechanisms, but I was awful at memorizing certain reactions and things that were happening. So like that part of the class, I remember just failing a ton. And then once we kind of moved on to more understanding behind that memorization, I was like, oh, okay, this makes more sense. Like, I like this now. So yeah, (laughs) I definitely can relate. So as you know, our podcast is usually geared toward topics in biomechanics, but we were really excited to have you on the podcast to talk about your experience as a person in the LGBTQ plus community and also as a scientist. And we know you've really been a big voice for this, like you've served on different panels talking about these topics and just really been an active voice for this community in the past. Yeah, I, you know, I'm often invited to be on a panel, you know, to talk about my own experiences. And I would say that that's, that's not all that active <laughs> because that means that someone else organized an event. <laughs> <laughs> and, me and I said, sure, you know, I should start by thanking all of the groups, both at Stanford and Uh, the other universities and institutions I've been affiliated with, I've been very lucky that there have been so many people who were willing to give of their time and energy to organize events and this podcast included. And then they invite me to come on and I'm happy to come, you know, and tell my story. I have really benefited from lots of other people's actions. Yeah. Well, we really appreciate you offering to share your story because I think like the topic of what it means to be LGBTQ plus in, in science is starting to become more widely talked about. But historically, those two identities have kind of been seen more as exclusive. And so we're, I'm kind of curious about how that has played a part in your life where like, you know, both of those identities are who you make up who you are as a, as a person, but maybe how those two have kind of influenced each other. It's interesting. It's a really interesting question. And it's hard, it's a hard one to answer because, you know, I only have my own like frame of reference. I've never done the control experiment, right? Where, <laughs> what would my life in science be like if I were straight? You know, I have no idea. <laughs> so it's hard, to know, it's hard to know like how one thing influences the other, right? When you don't have a randomized controlled trial. <laughs> like everyone is now familiar with that concept. Just hindsight. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, when you're a gay person, you probably share some experiences with other gay people that straight people don't experience, right? No matter what your job is. And I think one common experience I hear about from people is, you know, feeling like an outsider. I think, you know, kids who grow up and when they, you know, become self-aware, often they're in a lonely environment. Sometimes, you know, they don't feel safe coming out to their friends or their family, you know, their kids, right? They don't have autonomy and it can be a very lonely experience. And I think it's also true that women who are in the physical sciences who are straight, you know, often find as they progress in their profession that it can be a lonely experience, right? You know, they might be the one and only female faculty member in their department, the one and only woman in the management team. I think being able to deal with 
you know, life as an outsider is something that gay people, they have a lot of experience with that. And I think at the time that I made the decision to pursue chemistry as a profession and academia, I guess I, you know, I already was very comfortable, like I had coping mechanisms for being a minority. And I think that was helpful because I, I remember in graduate school, that was the first time where I felt, you know, there was like the women disappeared. You know, they, they were there in college, but when I went into my yeah. PhD program in 1988, it was a long time ago, you know, it was like 10% women back then in chemistry PhD programs. The few women that were in the program were like, wow, this is so weird. You know, it's like, they, I just feel like I don't belong here. And I was like, well, I'm, you know, what else is new? You know, but I, had, I didn't have a problem with that because I had no expectation of fitting in anywhere ever. So I think that actually was sort of an advantage to me. And it also kind of shielded me from some of the toxic masculinity dynamics that heterosexual women have to contend with. And again, I, this is just from my friends and the way that they described it to me, they felt frustrated when they weren't being taken seriously professionally by their male colleagues. And I think that's because the men interacted with them as you know, people that they might want to date, right? Or people, they really didn't know how to interact with them as a scientist. I didn't have that problem because no, none of the men were going to interact with me like someone they wanted to date, right? So they were like, they didn't know how to talk to me. There was nothing else to talk about except chemistry, I guess, right? So that was an interesting, an interesting situation for me to watch, you know? And for the most part, you know, I mean, there were obviously some exceptions where I had to contend with homophobia. I mean, show me a gay person who hasn't, right? I mean, of course, but I think for the most part, people very quickly get past their sort of discomfort with meeting a gay person when they're not used to that or something, they very quickly get past that and forget that. And then you just blend in after a while. You talked a lot about this feeling of kind of being an outsider. And I think sometimes that can come from within, but a lot of times that can come from like the cultures that, like you said, the environments that where a single woman in the, you know, this environment of other males. But I'm wondering how have you approached improving this inclusivity in science, whether it be like actions or with just like things you say, or, you know, what types of things do you do to kind of improve that environment? First of all, I'm always looking for new and better ideas. Okay. So I don't have all the answers here. So I'm <laughs> open-minded when people present me with ideas. So I don't know. I think maybe the, the, probably the most important thing I can do in my present position is, mm-hmm. you know, listen to people and try and hear what they're saying. And then from a very pragmatic standpoint, I do have some control over, for example, the people in my own lab, because I am the sole decider of who I hire, right, to be in my group, my grad students and my postdocs and my technicians, my staff, because that's the one sphere of influence where I have the primary decision-making power, I have an opportunity to try to create a diverse and inclusive lab. And I have some influence beyond that, like we hire faculty in chemistry, I'm in the chemistry department. So I have input into who we hire and promote. Certainly I'm not a sole decision maker, That's those decisions get made at more of the department consensus level, but I have a voice and I can use that voice. So I think those are the two things that I you know, have to remind myself to you know, use my voice to advocate for diversity, inclusion, and the voices of other people. And then in my own lab, I think it's important that I do my best to, you know, have a, the best lab that I can create, which is going to be a diverse lab. And I think I've been successful in some ways and not as successful in others, and there's plenty of room for improvement. Yeah. 
I think those are some great examples of even when we feel like we're not doing something that's like some worldwide movement, just like what we're doing in our daily lives and how we're interacting with people who look up to us is really important. And you also talked about some like coping mechanisms that you picked up. And I'm wondering like what advice you would give to like students or people who are feeling like having some of those similar feelings of being an outsider and what kind of strategies you use to help you get through those? Well, I think it's, it's really helpful to build a network and one thing I've also come to learn is that relationships are very important in science. Obviously, we work, it's a very much a team type of endeavor. And it's the relationships of your immediate coworkers, but also you need a network of relationships within your field, with different agencies, with in, private industry sometimes, depending on your work. And I think the more you can in, invest in relationship building, the less isolated you feel, no matter what is the source of your isolation, right? That can be helpful. When I was in graduate school, I also had a network of gay, like grad student friends. And like one or two of them were from the chemistry department, but there were many from other departments. And we met through, you know, there was like a graduate student organization, right? And Stanford has OSTEM. There's a couple of, you know, sort of self-run student level queer groups at Stanford. And I would encourage younger people, trainees, you know, students or postdocs who were feeling isolated in their own local environment to try to, you know, become part of a bigger environment. You know, it's interesting. Once you leave studenthood, it becomes harder and harder <laughs> to, to build those sort of friendship networks. Yeah. People are busy, you know, a lot of you know, people have families that consume all of their free time, you know, and less, there's less time for sort of just making new friends and socializing. So I think, you know, when people progress in their careers, it's actually quite easy to become more and more isolated when you don't have the sort of natural student relationships that you have, you know, when you're in grad school. So then, then it's harder, but, you know, also the older you get, the less you need it in a way, because you've built your own family-oriented network or your neighborhood-oriented network. And also the older you get, the more you just stop caring about stuff. <laughs> I think <laughs> helpful. <laughs> Things that are very, that seem very important and difficult to manage when you're in your 20s. I can tell you in your 50s, you just don't give a crap anymore. <laughs> it doesn't bother you anymore. It's so yeah. interesting how that happens. Like, I just wonder, I guess it's just like having more experiences and just realizing that the things you thought were really going to impact you or bring you down, like, haven't, or you've been able to get stronger through that. And maybe that's one of the reasons why you know, as you get older, you stop feeling like it's going to be such a challenge for you. Yeah. And you also just have more power. I mean, right. You're, you're, you have more autonomy, you have more accomplishments. So you're less subject to, you know, toxic power structures. You have more control of your destiny, right. Than you do when you, mean you right now as students, you guys are grad students. Yeah. 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 And, you know, you feel, I mean, you, you feel like you have no control over your destiny, right? Yeah, you're beholden sure. to your professor, right? You're sort of beholden to your professor to help you finish a PhD, get your thesis done, signed and approved, and then to write letters for you to support you as you then go look for the next job. And you have no idea what that job will be. Right. right? I mean, I know that feeling, right? Someone says, where are you going to be five years from now? You have no idea. And you might have a dream plan, but there's no guarantee and, you know, fast forward yourselves 30 years from now, you'll have been settled in professions. You'll have had moved around a couple of different jobs probably by then. You know, you'll have a lot more 
autonomy and control over your destiny. And so other things don't seem to don't matter as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Thank you for that advice. I, and we were talking before, you've been really active and, and about, you know, talking to students. And I also have heard from students that have attended your talks that you have done really amazing things like tried to get or have gotten like equal benefits for domestic partnerships before gay marriages were legal. And I also know that you were involved and were in the area of Berkeley during the AIDS epidemic and had some really deep and and interesting stories from that. And I would love to hear, I don't know if we have time to talk about both of those, but if you'd be willing to share maybe a story from, from either of those, that would be great. Well, you know, yeah, I mean, the 80s, you know, I I was in college (laughs) from 84 to 88. And that was sort of when the AIDS crisis just swelled. The virus had been identified, but there were no treatments, really. And it was a death sentence. And it was fast. And it was, it was gruesome. I mean, awful. And so, you know, college was when I was sort of becoming self-aware as a gay person and getting involved in the local, I was at Harvard as an undergrad so we had a you know a, a gay student organization there, and and AIDS was starting was just popping around up in Boston. It had already was in, rampant in New York City and in San Francisco. So by the time I moved out to Berkeley, and that was in 1988, you know ACT UP had been formed, Queer Nation had been formed, and these were AIDS activist organizations. You know ACT UP was launched by Larry Kramer, who just passed away this week. He he was a legend in gay activism. He died. He was 84 years old. And he has been living with AIDS uh, since the 1980s. And, you know, at the time when, when all this was happening, it was, you know, being a gay person and being out as a gay person and vocal for, the, for your rights as a human being and a gay person, it was like a life and death situation. That was like in the air back then. So I, you know, I was in ACT UP and we had our staged protests in San Francisco where we called them die-ins. So we would all lie down on the street and outline ourselves with chalk. Oh my gosh. And, wow. and, just, and block traffic up and down Market Street and on Van Ness, you know, in front of City Hall. Wow. <laughs> and one of my very best friends from grad school, he was also a chemistry PhD student. He had a partner who was also a Berkeley graduate student in a different program. And they had been dating for a while. And back then, you know, when you started dating someone, you should go get tested, right? That was sort of like everyone said, you know, bef- before you engage in any intimacy, you've got to get tested. And they kept putting it off and putting it off because they were scared. They didn't want to know, right? And so finally they went and got tested and my friend was negative, but his boyfriend was positive. And that for me changed everything because we were really good friends. We hung around a lot and we had a bunch of friends that we had Thanksgiving with every year. And every year during grad school, we would get together for this Thanksgiving party. And there was always like a few guys from the previous year that were gone and they had died. And every year, more and more of them died. And then that year, we got the positive diagnosis for my friend. And he, we had Thanksgiving, and he was like, am I going to be here next year? And it was so, and the way that they died was so gruesome. I mean, it was just awful because they succumbed to opportunistic infections for the most part. And, you know, I spent a lot of time in grad school in hospitals, right, visiting people. I was just in and out of hospitals all the time. Every weekend, we're like, oh, who are we going to visit this weekend? You know, we're in the hospital. And you'd walk into the AIDS ward and it was like COVID wards, right? Everyone was like head to toe PPE. In the early years, it was because people were afraid to catch it. They didn't quite know that you weren't going to catch it from airspace. But as the years ticked by, it became the opposite where you didn't want to infect 
someone who is immune compromised with mm-hmm. whatever you're carrying. And then, you know, by the 90s, around the mid 90s, it just changed because the drugs, you know, we ended up with protease inhibitors, right? And those with the non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, and then eventually the integrase inhibitors came in. And it was like, you know, my, this friend of mine who was positive, and we were just kind of, it was a ticking time bomb. We were like waiting. He was getting his T cells monitored every month, waiting for them to drop, you know, just waiting and waiting and waiting. And they didn't. And he hung in there asymptomatic for a long time. And then they started to drop and he had his first opportunistic infection. It was a CMV infection. And that was just around the time the first protease inhibitors had been approved. So they put him on the protease inhibitor and it subsided and his T cells came back up. And the thing is, in in that period of time, because he had assumed that he had no future and that he wouldn't survive, you know, for five, beyond five years or so, he actually had spent all his savings, had decided, I want to see the world. He had traveled the world and burned all of his savings to the ground because there's no tomorrow. And all of a sudden there was a tomorrow, (laughs) you know, and he's still alive today, just as Larry Kramer lived to be 84 years old. And Larry never thought he would even see the age of like 35, you know. And he lived wow. to be 84. So that's, that's in my experience. And, and much of that happened during my years as a grad student and a postdoc. Mm, wow. What a time to be yeah. like in that and talk about perspective. Like, I think like what a time to be gaining that perspective and seeing that like so intimately in those different relationships. Yeah. Um, and it definitely made me want to kind of shift my research as a postdoc and later as a faculty member to be kind of more translational, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Carolyn, thank you. This has been, I just want to sit here and listen to you tell these yeah, amazing like, stories. No, I'm curious for you guys. So here you are, your grad students in a weird yeah. pandemic situation where your research is shut down and mm-hmm. you don't know when you're going to crank up to full operations again, but there's a lot of uncertainty about the economy and what, what's waiting for you on the other side, because you're at that point where you want to start your careers. And mm-hmm. I imagine you know, some years from now, where you're going to look back and say, like, that was such a strange episode in history. <laughs> and maybe it is affecting yeah. your future in ways it's too early to predict right now, but it could be. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. Like when you make those connections and, and how that shifted your career and yeah, thinking about how, yeah, it's definitely hard to know now and, and to even comprehend the effects that this will have as we're going through it. But it is interesting to think about, about that. And I know, yeah, I agree with Hannah that I could continue to listen to these stories. I know you only have a couple minutes left, so maybe we could just end with one last question, which is, if we were like 50 years into the future, sometime in the future, what would it take for you to reflect on the state of the scientific or academic community or either even like just society as a whole and say that we're really a truly an inclusive community? Wow. Well, I'd like to see a succession of women heads of state. I think that's, you know, yeah, I mean, that would be America, nice. <laughs> um, we haven't managed to accomplish such a basic thing as yeah. include 50% of the population in the power structure that governs us. So I think anything short of that is a failure. So I would like 50 years from now to look back at not a one-off, you know, first time in 500 years and last time. I would like to see some, uh, you know, kind of a regular flux of women heads of state in the United States. I would like to see the Senate and the Supreme Court, you know, represent us better. I would like to think 
that we could have not only a woman head of state, but maybe, you know, a gay person. We actually had a, a candidate for the Demo in the Democratic primary who was gay, where like it almost was, didn't even come up almost. I mean, maybe yeah. it came up in some circles, wow. but around here, when you heard people talking about Pete Buttigieg, I mean, nobody ever said, oh, by the way, he's gay and running on a gay agenda. It was just kind of like, <laughs> and that's to me is like, I'm like, how, that's amazing that that is what happened actually. It wasn't that long ago in my world where just being an openly gay person was such a, a, a radical thing. Just, it was so radical to even just acknowledge that. And the social view of queer people and their lives and relationships and their relationship to society has changed so much in 10 years. It's unbelievable. I'm so happy. I really am so grateful that like your generation is such a progressive generation of people. And I saw that for the first time during Obama's candidacy and when he was elected president and the influence that like people under the age of 30 had in that process. At the time that was so important to me because I had just, we had just had our first baby. He had just been born in 2008. Mm -hmm. And in September wow. 2008, he was born. Two months later, you know, we elected Obama. And wow. I remember it was such a relief to me, even though Obama was, you know, not a perfect candidate for gay rights by any stretch, but it was such a push in the right direction. I felt much more hopeful that I had brought, I was nervous about bringing a child into a homophobic world where he mm -hmm. might take a lot of abuse because of the nature of his parents. And I was like, what's, what is in store for him? I don't know, you know? Uh, mm -hmm. And I felt so much better when I saw how people reacted to Barack Obama. And then when we finally had the Supreme Court decision that enabled national same-sex marriage rights, that was another moment where I felt such a sense of relief that now I have three little boys and I want them to be in a world that will mm -hmm. accept their family. And I feel like that could happen. So yeah. that's important for me. <laughs> so thank you. Bless you, young people of the world. <laughs> Well, yeah. thank you for being our, you know, role model and someone we can look up to and feel like we're able to to do that. Yeah, for sure. and for coming on this and inspiring a lot of other people who are listening, I think, and might be feeling some of these feelings of outsiderness or, or whatever they might be feeling and being able to relate to someone like you and all that you've done. Well, tell them, feel free to reach out to me anytime. I'm easy <laughs> to find, right? <laughs> yeah, what is the best way to do that? Email yeah. or... Yeah. Email? Okay, great. Sure. We'll share your right, email we'll with, you. with our <laughs> listeners. Thanks, Carolyn. All right. Bye. Wow, that was just such an amazing conversation and so great to hear like all of that coming from the perspective of, you know, a Stanford professor, a MacArthur genius, someone that's so accomplished but also so down to earth and really cool to hear her stories. And now it's really exciting to hear stories and experiences from a fellow student. Yeah, I'm just couldn't be more excited to share Riley's story. Um, and I think it's particularly important to share stories like this because of the current culture around transgender people or gender nonconforming populations. And there was a really interesting study by Teresa Evans and her colleagues called Evidence for a Mental Health Crisis in Graduate Education. And this is a publication that's in Nature Biotechnology from 2018. And they actually found that transgender or gender nonconforming populations face an increased risk of depression and anxiety. And 
well, that's, that's just overall. But then they looked in the graduate trainee population in particular and found that their results were similar in that both transgender and gender nonconforming and female graduate students are significantly more likely to experience anxiety and depression than male graduate students. And they give That's us some wild. I know. And I mean, it, it makes sense, right? Like I think the support just isn't it's not the same. Yeah. And there's like so many reasons for that. I think like, as we'll hear from Riley, it's obviously like such an internal struggle as well. Like trying to un- like know who you are and like understand you know, what your identity is and maybe especially if it's different than how you present yourself or have presented yourself your whole life or how people see you. And yeah, and I think also we just don't talk about it very often. Like it's just not the norm yet. And I really hope that it's getting there. Yeah, they give some numbers and they, those transgender, gender nonconforming graduate students' um, rates of anxiety and depression were 55 and 57% respectively, which is... And what were the... Yeah, compared with... Um, But compared with non-gender minority counterparts, 43% and 41% in females and 34 and 35% in males, which like is still high. Like I think we know though, I mean, there have been studies that have said anxiety and depression in graduate students are high. But then just having that additional, the additional challenges that come with, you know, having an identity that's not the norm, um, Mm -hmm. seems like it's just further increases those rates of depression and anxiety. And I think it's like, it's sad, but it's, it's just like shows that how much we still need to be changing and trying to be more open and inclusive with our conversations and also with advocating for certain resources for all people, because this is like the hard data, right, of like people are suffering and it's not equal suffering for all. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think it's like being able to expand the resources for graduate students and also, you know, possibly like training faculty to just like better know how yeah. to approach these situations and and really just promote an inclusive environment where people feel exactly. safe. And I think hopefully with this next interview with Riley, you'll be really inspired by, you know, how brave she is in her stories, but also get that perspective of what a student is going through. And I think this is so valuable for students who are going through something similar to this, but also for you know, people that aren't and want some insight on what they might be going through and how we can be advocates for people and and support each other. Totally. The way she's just so open and genuine, it just, I think that itself, right, is just an open door for others to be able to reciprocate that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we could keep going on about how much we love it. Why don't we just jump into it? (laughs) Enjoy. Today on Boom, we're really excited to be talking with Riley Suhar, who is a material science PhD student at Stanford and also an amazing artist and photographer. I'm constantly blown away by your digital illustrations, both scientific and non-scientific. And also I'm hearing an avid gamer and is talking with us with all this fancy um, <laughs> microphone. A little, too, a little too insecure about it, actually. Yeah. Well, it's really, I have two friends that are literally stated audiophiles. 
And so they will just go off sometimes about like all the quality of stuff. And I start feeling really self-conscious. I'm like, maybe I can have something as well. <laughs> They're super into it though. But I also know you through my roommate because you're lab mates in Sarah Halshern's lab, biomaterials lab. And so I know from our barbecues that you're also a great cook. So lots of amazing things about you. And I was looking up kind of the overview of your research and I saw a description of it, which is elastin-like polypeptide-based nerve guides for the treatment of peripheral nerve injury. And I don't know what that means, but I was hoping (laughs) before we start, you could just like give us a lay term or definition of of what you you work on. Yeah, it's actually... um... It's really thematically appropriate because that exact project that that's based off is the manuscript I'm writing right now. So I was like, oh, working yeah. on it right before I came. Yeah, no, it's pretty exciting. Basically, in my whole like lab, my general role is actually I'm just the animal person. So I do all the animal surgery, I do all the behavioral studies, all that kind of stuff for our lab. But something like the first project that I ever got on, and one that I'm super interested in, is working with the regeneration of peripheral nerves. So there's like spinal cords and brain tissue and people are familiar with these and generally they don't have a lot of possibility to regenerate when they get damaged, but the peripheral nerve system can. And so one of the common ways that people try to regenerate a peripheral nerve when it gets damaged is they input what is called a conduit inside of that area where they take the two ends of the nerve and they'll actually mm-hmm. micro suture them in and try to get nerves to regenerate across that gap. Interesting. Yeah. And so there's there's been a whole bunch of research in trying to come up with new materials in that space that can try and replace what is commonly used now, which is a nerve autograft, which is where you take tissue from somewhere else in your body and use to repair one damage. But you can imagine there's limitations with that, where if you do that, you hurt yourself. And there's also sometimes if you're an older patient, for example, where the nerve damage is really extensive, you may not have viable tissue that can replace it. So Sarah's lab in particular is always focused on the development of synthetic materials that do all number of biomechanical and biochemical functions to try to get cells to do different things. And so what I use is I use some of those synthetic materials as a filler material for hollow conduits, and then I micro those into the site of an injury that I make inside of an animal. And then I try to track how that leads to functional recovery, sensory recovery, synapse formation, that neuromuscular junctions, just things to check how viable our materials are at supporting regeneration. So that's basically the whole broad field of it. And there's like little tiny projects that I do inside of that, like making new proteins and stuff as well. And there's like optimization projects, like how do you make that material the best it can be for something like nerve regeneration? But broadly yeah. defined, it's really about engineering those new materials for nerve regeneration. That's yeah. awesome. You I, I love it. Yeah. You get, that's awesome. You get to do like the full gamut of things, right? Like you're going right from like sort of the de novo material into the animal and being oh. able to track how it's, yeah. How it's yeah. Going. And it's really exciting too, because what's kind of fun is just like you said, being able to go from start to finish. So like the main material that I use was one that somebody had already made, but I developed whole variants like libraries of those like different versions of that material that I use for other in vitro like cell assays and other projects. And so, you know, through these different projects, I have been able to experience that whole thing. And what's also kind of fun too, is that I love animals. You know, I see that I have like a rabbit and there's like a fish tank behind me and, you know, it's like a whole little menagerie. And so being able to work with animals in particular is like a huge, just like a, it's a real privilege and an honor to do that. I love working with them. And I've been able to teach a bunch of undergraduates how to do uh, animal handling as well. It's always just really exciting to see a new student come into the field and be able to also get to experience all that's available there because that sense of like excitement but being overwhelmed at the same time, I think it's hard to find sometimes when you're in a really niche subject. And so there's just 
yeah, it's, it's exciting all around, I think, just to be able to like take place in so many things in any one day. So, yeah. That's awesome. When did you know that you wanted to be a scientist? Oh, that, so that's kind of interesting. It took me years and years to figure that out. I did not intend to go to college when I was in high school. I actually ended up only going to college because my dad made me. I was going to enlist in the military originally. And my father yelled at me and got really upset with me and said the only way that I could do that is if I did it as an officer. So I used that as an incentive to do that. But then when I started doing officer training for the Marine Corps, he got still mad at me because he said that the military was no good. And so for the first actually three years that I was an undergraduate, I was planning to be a Marine. I did officer candidate school. I went to um, Quantico, Virginia to train like military training for a number of years in preparation for that. Wow. And I was actually trying to get in line so that I could become an officer when I left graduate undergraduate. But what ended up happening is right after I finished officer candidate school, I had an opportunity to go abroad and study Japanese. So I did that for a year in a university in Tokyo. And while I was there and kind of got removed away from everything, it gave me a chance to kind of gain a new perspective on what I wanted to do. And this kind of like realization that there was some intrinsic effort to make life challenging and that somehow the idea of being challenged and not particularly happy was a symbol of me doing well. But when I got pulled out of that system for once and got to kind of really look at it, I realized that the path that I was on, while fine for many people, was not the one I wanted. And at that point, right when I came back, I actually immediately called the recruiting office and told them that I was done, that I didn't want to continue anymore. Fortunately, the track that I had taken was one that there wasn't an obligation of service because I wasn't receiving any kind of funding for it and went right down to a the only lab that would actually take me, which was a shape memory alloy lab in the material science department and spent two years working on memory alloys with a graduate student. And when I was doing that, it was really exciting because I knew literally nothing. The person I worked with was actually a very great teacher. I, he's one of the people I play with every day still. Um, <laughs> so like almost six years later, he became one of my best friends. That's awesome. And I think, yeah, I think spending time with him and being able to step back really kind of showed me that I would miss the challenge of education and being able to learn new things and mm -hmm. some of the freedom that comes with exploring those things. And after all of that combined at the end of undergraduate and only then did I actually apply to graduate school. So I, I, I didn't really know. Actually, I was making many efforts to not become a scientist. Um, <laughs> it just ended up being that by the end of all those things, it ended up being the only thing I could do. But, I, you know, I, I'm grateful for having been able to explore all those different paths because I think it was, I only learned by trial by fire. And so for me, I think it worked out great. I'm very happy with where I am. And that comes from a place of having failed all of those things before. Um, and so at least I got to try them and see, which is really, really nice. Yeah, so that's, yeah. sorry for the long response. <laughs> I feel like that's a huge theme that we like to talk about on this podcast is that feeling of... It, it's hard to call it a failure sometimes, right? It's just trying something and, and oh, not liking sure. or yeah. being different. But yeah, like, and how it really leads to some of the most significant growth and learnings that we undergo in our lives. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I, I also definitely agree. I don't, I don't think there's anything like wasted <laughs> knowledge. Like a whole bunch of people say that if you're not going to use it, then you shouldn't. They try to like optimize it all the time, saying that you should only be doing the things you're going to use. But I find that you don't really know what the things you're going to use are until you try a bunch of things to kind of totally. narrow them down. And so, no, I absolutely agree. I think that it's not a failure, just like you said. It's very much just you're learning many things along the way. And some of the things that you may learn are just things that you don't want to use or won't use or can't use. But it's still very beneficial. You talked about 
this feeling of knowing this wasn't right and then like making kind of the decision to transition or pivot out of this kind of track that you were on Mm -hmm. and pretty confident about earlier and then then you were jumping into a completely new space where you had no idea what was going on and we're just like learning. So can you talk about like kind of what you were feeling during those periods and how you felt maybe confident enough to like stay in that? Like, I think if I'm thinking about myself being in that kind of situation, I would be like panicking and (laughs) freaking out about what what I want and things like that. So like kind of talk about your experience there. Yeah, I can definitely try. I think everyone's going to come from some kind of different standpoint or background that they start with. And I grew up into a household and an environment that was really, really challenging. Family was just very hard. It's sometimes like difficult to go into like exactly what that can mean. But the result of that is that I kind of trained myself and grew up in this way to think that I had to absolutely not not be what I wanted to be, but be the best, no matter what that took. And in the pursuit of doing that, I found that I was always very, very angry because I was spending so much time pushing myself to compete with people around me. I felt that I had to not just be good at something, not just get A's in classes and things like that, but ensure that there was no question that I was the best. And if that didn't happen, I failed. And so to do that, I tried to do as many things as humanly possible, even if I didn't want to do them. It had nothing to do with what I personally wanted. It only had to do with the objective goal that if you can't do everything more than everyone, you have failed. Wow. It seems like and not even just like being the best at everything, but doing as many things as possible. Exactly. Like and that, yeah. That's how I was trained in my home. Yeah. And so the process to doing that, eventually, if you do that long enough, you stop thinking about how you feel about things. And you stop thinking about what you have to do to do it in terms of how hostile you are towards people around you. You stop viewing time as anything other than just a resource to be spent on things that will get you somewhere else. And doing that made me a very hostile person in general. I did not have a lot of friends. I did not communicate very effectively. It was very cruel to people, unnecessarily so. And it wasn't fair. And I think what affirmed in my mind that I should probably change from that path was the opportunity to leave. Because what had happened is if you are constantly surrounding yourself with those things, all that is doing is reinforcing that mentality passively. You never get to question something because if you drown yourself effectively in all of these things and you never get to stop and pause, you never get the ability to think about it. And so it was exactly. So all of the tasks that I was really doing was an attempt to blind myself to the thing, to the fact that I didn't like what I was doing, but it kept on doing a negative feedback loop. What would happen is you just keep doing more and more and more. Yeah. And that effectively keeps narrowing your view even more. Mm-hmm. And so what I ended up doing instead, or what I found to be a lot better is that when I was able to leave, that was the first time that all of that finally got stopped. And when all of those things were gone and I was actually left with, now I just have my time to myself. It was kind of interesting because the whole whole time abroad was about a year long and the first three months was literally just spent doing everything i had been doing from years before constantly working constantly doing everything but as that started to subside and i just started to say well i don't actually really have to do these things i would go out and explore and I would try to talk to more people and i would spend more time thinking about what i was going to do with my time instead of just mechanically moving from place to place to get something done 
And in that search and in that time where I was able to stop completely putting those blinders on, I really began to find out, well, I don't actually like doing it at all. And as I was sitting in a lot of these places when I was like traveling abroad and stuff like that, I was just genuinely happy for the first time, like a, a really actual long thing. Because there's there's a sense of joy that you get over doing what I just said, being very good at the things that you do. That's fine. But it all felt very hollow compared to even just a handful of nights that I got to spend traveling around, albeit on my own a lot of time. But that felt so much better than all the years of things I had done before that I knew that I had to make a change to go down that pathway instead. And so I think that it was probably in the last couple months before I was coming home that I was really grappling with that decision. And of course, there's a whole bunch of inherent fear associated with that. Like you were saying, it's very, very scary. But I did have the fortunate case that I had a year to do that, which is very, very rare, and very, very uncommon. I'm super lucky to have been able to have that opportunity. But it, I think the thing that confirmed it in my mind was being able to step away from everything and try to actually spend time with myself and realize that when I was there, I hated who was sitting with me and that I needed mm-hmm. to make a kind of change to become a better person. And as much as I wanted to, and, you know, getting all those voices away was the best way to do it. I don't know if that answers yeah. the question, but. <laughs> that is just an incredible story and just amazing how you were able to do that self-reflection and really dig deep and figure out the person that you wanted to be and recognize that it, it wasn't who you are at that time. But yeah, I, I think you're right in that, like, having that actual physical distance also gives you some sort of like emotional space to think about who you are and, and start to, you know, make some of those changes to become that person. So yeah. What an awesome story. Definitely Um, that cognitive distance was like probably the biggest thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, we were also hoping to hear another one of your stories. So since this is our pride episode and, and we've heard these amazing things about, we already like, think you're an amazing person, amazing scientist, and you also happen to be a trans woman. And we would love to just hear about your story with that and and how maybe you can start off about like when you knew that you were identified as a, as a woman and that maybe if it was different than like when you came out, when that was, and kind of just talk about that experience. I'm sure it's a, there's a lot to (laughs) talk about. Yeah. I was actually just thinking, I was like, oh, No, I mean, it definitely, that's hard, I think, for, for anyone yeah. in that space or in the queer space in general. And always the question of when did you know something? Um, yeah. Yeah, know, knowing that can be hard for everyone. And I think, I guess I can break it down into a couple of things. I basically think of my life in a couple of sections where one of them was broadly defined to say some sort of denial phase. And what I mean by that is not just about gender identity, but about everything. So the whole undergraduate approach was this idea of a denial phase, that there, there was no sense of happiness. There was just this one mission of becoming the best, whatever that meant. And this whole mentality that ended up being built up that the ultimate sign of success was unhappiness and kind of a building, as I've heard, kind of said dramatically somewhere else, a temple to suffering. The idea that if you were tired, if you were exhausted, if you were unhappy, somehow you were morally better off 
than somebody who is happy because someone who's happy is wasting their time, right? If they're not doing everything they can, it must yeah. not be working enough. And that's so interesting because I also feel that sometimes in grad school where it's like, um, are you sleeping that night? If you're sleeping, then you're not doing enough. <laughs> well, that's yeah, and I, you know, that's that's something that's really painfully sad because that that is so prolific in our culture the the hustle culture right that's really just a a cutesy term for what i just said it's that whole idea that you want to subjugate yourself to suffering because that is the sign of success for many people and they don't say it that way but that's what it ends up translating to they don't call it that but that's the Mm. result and so that's what it ends up being and so when i was growing up i grew up in the south of florida I think you guys have probably heard some of the stereotypes about Florida. They're mostly true. Um, And something that I think was kind of interesting about my position in particular was that my family is exceptionally old. And what I'll give as a perspective of that is my father was born in 1944. So to put that kind of in perspective, I think that makes him, what, 76? He actually just turned 77. I thought at first you were saying like old school and like traditions, but I see. But, but also, that's, like literally yeah. old. <laughs> but that's exactly what it comes down to. My grandmother was born in the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. And so they wow. lived in a period where the social rules and norms of our society were very, very different. So I used to hear a lot of really cruel and nasty things about different races, different genders, different sexualities. And when you grow up in a household like that, identifying as a woman is not something you can do, but you can identify as a deviant. Because if you're told all the time that a certain behavior is wrong or bad, you don't ever conceptualize it in concept of an identity. It's not an identity. It's a wrongdoing. It's a sin. It's something cruel. So as I was growing up, all the way probably up through undergraduate, the word transgender never, ever popped into my mind. It was something much more malicious. Which is, which I, I think many, there's a whole bunch of people inside the queer community that can identify with some aspect of that, whether they came from, maybe you always hear about like ultra-religious households. Things like that can be very challenging for a lot of people in the homosexual community. Trans communities definitely coming into that space as well. But there's all manners of society that for whatever reason or another that I ultimately think has come down to a hatred of change, dislike people like us. And the result of that is you end up going thinking that you're wrong. And if you continually reinforce that, coupled with this idea that you should ignore the things that make you happy, well, it becomes very easy to ignore those things as well and to continue putting off thinking about what you are and instead think about, well, it doesn't matter what it is or why, but if it's painful, it must be right. So yeah. suppression becomes yeah. the new beginning. It kind of just like takes away the opportunity for you to go deeper into that and like explore that. It just really kind of cuts it off at, in a really sad place. Mm-hmm. And yeah. like, it's a black and white thing. Like it's, exactly. yeah. And so for a number of years, I never paid any thought to it or tried to ignore any drive any ambition, any, we'll say research for lack of a little more fun term, research into what those feelings could possibly mean were just ignored um, as part of the general doctrine of the day. I think something that like really reaffirmed or really like started to bring to light, and this is going to be like a common theme, is that when I had gone through a lot of that military training, I distinctly remember one day after they had shaved all of our hair off that I stopped in front of the mirror and just began to like really cry a lot, which is unfortunate. That's not a great place to be, especially in the middle of a barracks, but it's yeah. what happens. It's just like a small thing, but it's kind of a physical manifestation that even in the most stringent environment, the sensation that something that is happening to you or that you are doing is 
it's inherently against the nature of what you would prefer it to do. Some way of expressing yourself as being shut down. And that's not to say that that's the way you express yourself as being female. That's not my point. But that's for me a way of trying to present myself to the world as being taken from me. And I was allowing it. And even in a place of ultimate suppression, well, it still comes through. Yeah, it almost feels like it was like so overwhelming that it was like manifesting physically in some way. Yeah. And so I think in that same time period where I was trying to reevaluate the kind of person that I wanted to be, I knew that I wanted to identify the source of whatever those feelings were. Mm-hmm. Like why do I have a, I don't know the right word for it, unfortunately, but some kind of cognitive dissonance between the way that I present myself and the way that people receive me. And I could see it if I like thought about my life a lot when I was growing up, it showed up a lot too, in that I hated being seen by people in general. I can remember all throughout middle school, I used to wear like really long sleeve shirts, long sleeve pants, jack- anything to cover my skin. Mm-hmm. And it's this constant idea of a problem with visibility, that when somebody observes you, there's almost this collapsing of a state, right? You become something certain to that person. And so I would avoid everybody. Because if nobody knows me and nobody can speak to me or see me, well, there can be no conclusion made. And so I spent so many years avoiding people. My own hindsight, looking back, I think trying to avoid fulfilling some role that I didn't want to be in. After I had come back finally from abroad and decided to try and test those sorts of feelings, I still spent a number of years never really being able to use the word trans. That thought just never really came into my mind. Yeah. Um, but what did end up happening is I was very, very fortunate to live with a high school roommate of mine who was extremely progressive. And she challenged a lot of my very narcissistic and cruel tendencies that was mean to people around me and also mean to myself. And she got me thinking about, you know, maybe the things that you say aren't particularly fair. Maybe the things that you're talking about yourself aren't particularly right to you. Maybe you should explore your feelings more instead of trying to be angle and she would always challenge uh, my friend emily she wow. was i mean absolutely fantastic friend, yeah. no she yeah. she was and she put up with so much crap from me over the years and she still <laughs> stuck with that and i don't know if i've ever actually told her thank you and i really should not really think about it but she definitely got me thinking about it and i remember probably two years or so when I was doing that research when I came back to school, I spent a lot of time thinking about just looking up what trans people were or what is it like if you are a born a man and you hate being called a man, what does that actually mean? And that's when I started to find things about transgender people. And for the longest time, I was never going to do anything about it. I had never actually planned to. It was more just of a casual interest. So any kind of like transitioning social or medical was never an idea on my radar. But something that did happen a bit unexpectedly was that on another research trip abroad, I actually ended up meeting who is now my current girlfriend. And my current girlfriend is sweet and wonderful and great and amazing and extremely supportive. And one thing that she was trying to do when we first dated was that she was so supportive and so helpful, she thought I was actually just really nervous that I wasn't very confident at being a guy. So she tried to help me be a better guy by saying, oh, you're such a guy all the time. Wow, yeah. And I remember one night she said that to me and I did the same thing that I mentioned previously, like in that camp, I just started crying. And we had a huge discussion actually one night where I was just like, look, here's a really candid conversation. I have no idea what these words are. I want to be a woman. And like, I didn't know what that was. Sorry, I'm kind of weird. Yeah. It's kind of strange saying this out loud. But I didn't really have a context for what that was called or why it was that way. 
I knew that it was being triggered by her referring to me as a guy. It was being triggered by her calling me he and him. It was so upsetting to me that it was making me really upset. And Mm -hmm. I think after I spoke to her about it, I had made a pact that I was going to, in this, whatever my next stage of life was, be it graduate school or otherwise, I was going to go see a therapist because in my research, that was the best thing I found to do was that you should go talk to somebody. <laughs> and in my author research, I was like, safest place for trans people, San Francisco. San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so yeah. I established that when we were applying for graduate school, I had one read school, which was Stanford. And I made a pact that if I go into Stanford, I'm going to, the first thing I'm going to do is try to find someone who can help me figure this out, someone professional. I'm here. So I'm very, very lucky that fortunately happened. And uh, literally a week after I came here, I immediately called Beta, fulfilling that promise to find someone to talk to. And now your mileage may vary with them, but they were great for me. I had a wonderful opportunity to speak with a gender therapist over about the course of a year and a half where all we did we just it was only like once a month very small stuff but I got to really speak with somebody back and forth about stuff I was feeling coming out to different parts of my family coming out to my girlfriend other different friends stuff like that how comfortable I was with that pacing and just giving me things to think about and I think after about a year and a half I made one other promise myself was like okay I think this is real I feel like this is I'm not lying to myself it's I've thought about this forever and after speaking with her and doing a lot of introspection and talking with a bunch of my friends, I was like, you know, I, in as many ways as I can find proof that these are real feelings and not just something else, I had confirmed that and said that if I passed my qualifying exam, I would start transitioning. And I passed my qualifying exam. <laughs> <laughs> so it was very, very, which was like, awesome. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which, which, awesome. Well, no, but that's, I mean, and I think that when you ask, like, what the journey was like, that stepwise, what you're saying is exactly what it was. It was yeah. extremely slow. I'm very, still that mentality of being afraid of making a mistake is a very common theme. It's all about tiny steps, incremental steps, always making sure that what I'm doing is correct and right and just for me anyway. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it went from very, very tiny micro steps to just the very nature of being okay with questioning to, I think it was actually only about a year ago that I started using the term trans to refer to myself. And for the first couple years here the first two years i was transitioning and there's this really funny thing that's going to come up i didn't tell anyone i was actually on hormones for a really long time before i told people in my lab what that was about and then our professor was getting ready to move to georgia yeah and well that was bringing me back to the deep south so then i told her i was like well i have a bit of a problem if we go back <laughs> and she's like what and i cried in her office so there's that theme which is not particularly great and i had a great back-to-back and hard part with sarah over this and she sent me all number of articles about how supportive georgia tech was towards <laughs> people. Like, i love i love what you're doing but i'm like i cannot compare <laughs> yeah i see i see what you're doing i love you for it thank you so much for helping <laughs> So she was really great. And then I had one final chance to take a step away again, where I got to do an internship at the Cardiovascular Institute in Osaka, in Japan. And when I was in Osaka, Japan, I met this really, really, really sweet bisexual girl named Saya. I don't remember what her last name is. I call her saya But she and I spoke back and forth a lot. And she told me about her life as being bi in Japan, which is markedly, surprisingly, comparable in terms of how rough it is here. I think a lot of people think about that, but she got fortunately abused a lot as a kid for it. But what was really sweet about her is that 
she came up to me like and just out of the middle of nowhere and, and just flat out Japanese just asked me I'm sorry I have a question are you a boy or a girl and I was like oh let me tell you and so we had this dialogue <laughs> back and forth and so we got super close to each other and she told me she's like yeah you know from looking at you I could kind of tell and something that I thought was really cute about our conversations something that I learned was that in Japanese anyway the way that you ask somebody what they are is literally translates to but what are you in your heart Wow. <laughs> and so That's she asked me that. So sweet. Yeah. And so when I answered it in that question, I was like, you know, I think she's right. And so when I was actually abroad, that's when I decided to, again, for the third time now, tell everybody here that I was going to do that. And so I started changing my name on my Facebook, again, tiny little steps. And then in my group meeting presentation, when I came back, my last slide was that last story I just told you. And I told everyone I was trans there. Which wow. so that that's literally the how the whole thing kind of went and ever since then I think the last like year or two I've just been trying to finish out my PhD as semi normal as I can. A familiar yeah. struggle. <laughs> yeah, I mean so that I know that was really long, but that's kind of how it went. So yeah, it's been fun and scary and exciting. There's still new stuff all the time, um, which is really really cool. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think the end result is that no matter what, I'm just so much happier than I was. And if there was anything else you could possibly get out of anything you do in your life, I don't think there is a better outcome that you could hope for. So we'll see how it goes. I'm planning for the future. I'm kind of like looking ahead at what else I want to do in terms of not just like professional life, but like social life and transitioning further and things like that. So mm -hmm. it never really ends, I don't think. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that yeah. journey. It was like, I feel like I was there with you. And was, yeah, such a great, such a great story. And just, I love how you did a few things. Like you gave yourself those kind of benchmarks of like, if I do that, like I'm going to commit to myself in this way. Mm -hmm. Or you also seemed like you grew in like being self-aware and being okay with being self-aware in that throughout the whole thing, which is just so beautiful to see. I, I definitely think... There have been a handful of people who have always been there. And I don't think I have a bunch of friends, but the friends that I have are some of the best I can ever hope for. And so, you know, throughout that entire, it's definitely not a solitary thing. You know, it's told from yeah. the context of one perspective, but my girlfriend, Catherine, Emily, my other friend, Shelby, one of my best friends from middle school, Christine, have all, all been there that whole time and talked to me about this the whole way through in the best way that they can. And I think it was because I had that really wonderful supporting friends who had seen me from all manner of my life, <laughs> not just mm -hmm. someone I just met, but someone who's been there from the beginning, that I could get those outside opinions that I was looking for as someone who needed some sense of validation, to like, is this real? There's the graduate student, mm -hmm. coming, right? You don't, yeah. have oh, yeah. <laughs> you don't have a biased subject. So you need to have people <laughs> who, are, who are watching this outside of the system. So mm -hmm. yeah, so it all came together. Wow. I th yeah. And that's beautiful that you had those people and yeah, like just through your journey and that they were able to support you in the ways that they did. Yeah, um, I love them so much. For them. <laughs> well, shout out to them. Yeah. Um, so I I'm just curious, like from all of these experiences and like with all these great relationships and kind of people along the way, would you share like maybe something you've learned and also something you'd want other people to know if they're going through a similar experience, even just being maybe self-doubting or any kind of experience with that? It's not really helpful advice to hear it, but I think one of the best things to do is to just be brave. 
And I yeah. know that's, that's very challenging, but a lot of the people, you know, I have many friends now in the trans community, which I'm so, there's a lot of us at Stanford, which is great. Mm-hmm. But one common thing that I often hear there is that there's a fear what people are going to think of you. And I can affirm that after having slowly transitioned over years, the global opinion has only shifted a tiny amount. And so if you're waiting for a moment when people around you are going to be permissive to you doing the life that you want to live, you're going to wait forever because time literally never waits for anybody. And so I would recommend, and the best thing that I think anyone can take away is that if you know that something you are doing is not good for you, that you are not happy, that something in your life is challenging to you, that you need to sit down and grapple with that as quickly as you can. Yeah. Because the only way that you're going to get to a place where you are happier is if you start to face those things, accept who you are, and start to make the changes that you want to make instead of the people around you or further trying to exist in a space that you don't want to be. And I think that that's so broadly applicable, like outside of the queer community, that's you, anyone could be, if you don't like graduate school, if you don't like your job, if you don't like something about maybe the way that you think or the way that you act, any problem like that, you need to just stop running away from it. There's no shame in not liking where you are. There is only shame in propagating that to a place where you can no longer change it. And so with that as well, I've been watching a lot of Avatar recently. So in the words of Uncle Ira, the only cure for shame is truth and melody. So learn where you are. Mm. Try to be okay with the idea that just because something is wrong, that's not a problem. And that you can try to make those kind of changes and be okay with that. And honestly, the best thing you can do for yourself in any situation, in literally any situation. I love that. And I I just think your story just really, just shows how brave you are and like really... I feel like it's just the most incredible example of, of everything that you're saying and, and how you were actually able to do that in your life and like be brave and be vulnerable and, and reflect on who you are and actually start to make some of those changes. So it's amazing advice and also just incredible that you're not just someone to preach the advice, but really follow it. I'm curious, I guess maybe one more one kind of final question is we've heard kind of your path as a scientist and we've also heard this story of how you became to you know know that you identify as a woman and and transition into that and I was wondering how those maybe have influenced each other at all if they have oh so like path in the sciences and how coming to terms with like transitioning or like gender identity have like helped each other I mean they're both definitely related thematically speaking so the idea of like, what did I enjoy about school actually? So there's this whole notion of, you know, you're trained that you should use school as a utility. You should use knowledge as a, some kind of like tool to get yourself somewhere. That's how I was taught to think. And when you approach it that way, it's very unsatisfactory personally. It doesn't make you feel particularly great. Nothing really has a lot of fulfillment associated with it because you're just making emotions that don't really matter. Similarly, when you as a trans person in particular, ascribe to living in a role that you're not particularly happy with, all the things that you do are also unfulfilling and sad. And so I think something that I've seen between the two of them come together as a cohesive whole was sitting down and finding what in those things, either your everyday life, such as like the transitioning, or in your academics or in your studying, such as your daily life or your job, what in those things give you fulfillment? And what do you have to do to get those out of it? 
and whatever perspective shifts that take change. So I think that growing as a scientist has definitely helped me grow more as a well, as a trans person and vice versa. Being being brave, for example, outside presenting in a certain way, I can tell you there's literally nothing scarier than the first time you give a research presentation and everyone introduces you as she and you're like, oh well, I you know, it's not a mistake. I swear that's true. That like heart race that you get it's not that different than the nervousness that you get when you're deciding what variables to use in an experiment and you commit to doing it finally. Mm-hmm. It's not all that dissimilar than when you have to put yourself out there for anything. And I think the same thing can be said about artwork too, right? That's kind of the other part of that, like triumvirate, the love of art, part of it, like being able to improve and get better is to analyze objectively where you are and see where you want to go and make those honest strides to do so. And a big part of that is putting yourself out there because you do need to go in front of the world eventually. And if you don't get okay with doing that, any of those areas, you will never really attain the level that you want to, because you will always be hidden. You will never get any kind of the interactions that you're looking for that make those things really ultimately so fulfilling. Yeah, so something up there about probably maybe suggested that. <sighs> Thank you. I think that's great advice for all of us to, I don't know, keep in our hearts. And I keep thinking about the, that Japanese line of like, like what are you in your heart and like being confident and committing to that and being okay with whatever people's judgment of that is. And cause it's, it's yeah. what you are and who you are. So. I'm Messiah. She was so funny. Sounds great. Yeah, she is great. She's very, very fun. Thank you so much for yeah, sharing. If you guys have anything else, I'd be glad to come and talk yeah. to you. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I yeah, think, sorry. I, my, I appreciate you guys for letting me on here with you. My audio is delayed, so I keep cutting you off. <laughs> I was just going to say. It's okay. This is, this is Zoom life, right? This is the new normal. Yeah. <laughs> so true. Yeah, well, I thank just, you both for having me here as well. I really appreciate yeah. you guys, like, making space. I just also, yeah, wanted to thank you for sharing your story with us and, and for letting us share it with other people, because I think sometimes these conversations can be really difficult and you make it really easy to talk about these difficult conversations. And I think that will really help other people have some of these challenging conversations and think about how people can be more authentic to who they are and just be kinder and, and how we can help each other through tough times too. There are just so many amazing things that came through through those stories. And so I really appreciate you and, and you sharing this. I'm really grateful for you two for making space. That's always really sweet and being so thoughtful in your questions. I really just appreciate generally the kind of mission of what your talks are about. I think being able to try and not, not inform or necessarily teach, that's, that's not the goal, but to show people different ways of life so that they can make those decisions is a beautiful and very honorable goal that you two, I think, have set up with what you're doing. So thank you very much for letting me assist with that as well. Okay, so Riley, if people want to find you on social media or follow sort of your journey, where might that be the best Yeah, place? I mean, just in general, on Facebook is always fine. I'm usually open just to talk. If you send like a, a message letting me know that you're not a bot trying to give me money from some kind of weird site over the COVID-19 money, that would be great because I've had a bunch of those. Alternatively, if you just really like art in general, Instagram, or pretty much anywhere, Instagram, Twitter, and I think DeviantArt as well. I use the same name. It's Riley Will Rain, but like rain is in raindrops. 
And so that's where I host a lot of my artwork, um, both scientific and personal. So if that's kind of what your stick is, then you're more than welcome to go there and see what that's about. And if you love art, either practicing or just talking about, I'd love to hear from you. So that would be great. Yeah, awesome. that's about it. Thank you. Yeah, so thank you again. Well, we just want to give an extra thanks to Riley and also Carolyn for sharing their stories. Um, we hope that you learned from them and just enjoyed them and um, they really hit you as deep as they hit us because I think, yeah, we all have so much to learn from them and they're just two really inspiring people and advocates. And now we're going to continue the episode as we normally do with a research fail, but this time with a little twist on <laughs> with the topics that we've been discussing today. Okay, this is also from the TED Radio podcast on the biology. <laughs> if you want to, um, maybe you us, actually don't you need know. to listen to that episode because <laughs> we are covering it here. But I just like found these topics so fat, like these these stories so fascinating, and we're including this one in research fails because it's really. <laughs> Interesting, but also like terrible story about how research can go wrong. So in the 1960s and 70s, research scientists conducted surveys in mental institutions, max security hospitals, and in prisons around the world. And they're looking for, we talked earlier about how there are, there are actually different patterns in chromosomes than XY or XX. And so they're looking for an ab abnormality in tall, aggressive men that they thought they could like link to violent crime. They were thinking they could link this with the chromosomal um, abnormality, which is XYY syndrome. And so like this, they thought that would explain the aggression. Yes. Like having that extra Y chromosome would maybe lead to more like testosterone production and just lead to more aggression. And so the scientists actually did find high percentages of XYY men in those institutions. And this led to like this sensationalized idea of like super male to describe mass murderers and violent criminals who like allegedly had this like genetic defect. Wow. But what they super didn't... male, yeah, super male, super like male. This XYY exactly. is your super, super male, male. Um, yeah, um, super bad and, male though. Like this is a negative thing. Yes, yeah, exactly. Like being super male means like you're super aggressive and violent, I guess. Wow. But it led to like really extreme things like punishing men for like having this chromosome pattern, even if like they didn't do anything. And, and in some cases, like, which is like really horrible, but actually like aborting children that they, when oh they, my God. That they had this chromosomal pattern. And this was a huge fail because they didn't report that they also found high percentages of XXY um, chromosomal patterns. So, what? Um, yeah. So it wasn't the extra Y necessarily that's causing this aggressive behavior. Yes, exactly. And later they found out that in some of the studies, the percentages of the violent crimes committed by the XYY men were actually less than the number of violent crimes committed by control groups of like men outside of prison. So, wow. This ended up being this like myth of being a super male with an extra Y chromosome, but it just lives on to be just a really interesting, but also like terrible story of just not reporting findings accurately because you want them to be interesting, but then 
um, having a huge impact on people. Wow. Yeah. And talking about seeing what you want to see sometimes, I think, like being so married to some theory or some idea that you have about a scientific result and then being sort of blind to anything that might go against that and like really look how it can hurt. Like it's not just that you're wrong, but you're also like really hurting a huge population of people. And yeah, it's bad news bears. Yeah, absolutely. But I think this is also just telling like about how far we've come in terms of trying to understand the components of what makes up people's biological sex, what makes up our gender identities and our, our sexual orientations and, and how these just kind of all come together to make us a whole person. I hope from this episode, like we just kind of shed light on some of these topics, but I really hope that it'll help people kind of continue to have an open mind around these and be really accepting of all people. I, I really think like, I really think ignorance is not an excuse anymore for like, you know, just if you don't understand something, then, you know, it's not an excuse to, to not be inclusive and just like try to educate. To yeah. Educate yeah. yourself, learn about these things, talk to people, learn from their experiences and just, you know, continue to grow as a person. And yeah. And I really feel so grateful that we were able to do an episode like this, talk to people that were willing to come and share their experiences so deeply with us, because I think that's the only way, yeah, like you're saying that we can go forward and learn. Yeah, absolutely. And we would love to just continue to have these conversations. We'd love to talk to you about your story. And so if there are any, if there's anything you'd like to share with us about something you've learned from this episode, or if you have any other ideas of ways we can make our communities more inclusive, like we would also love to hear, hear those. So feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. So thank you for listening to this month's special Pride episode. Um, we'd like to thank the International Society of Biomechanics for supporting Boom and also just for the opportunity to have this platform to share some of these important ideas. We also like to thank Peter Washington for the amazing music and sounds that you've heard throughout the episode and just making it so much more fun. Yes. And if you like, you can follow Biomechanics on our minds on Twitter at BiomechanicsOOM or email us at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com. Yes, we love to hear from you. Biomechanics, Biomechanics off our minds. minds. Did we do it? <laughs> <laughs>